Today's podcast is part two of a two-part series on France attempting to install a puppet government in Mexico. If you haven't already, go listen to the Habsburg and Juarez part one so you can get caught up on what's happening. Uh, but if you prefer to just jump into things, the main thing that you need to know about this podcast is that France has installed a puppet emperor named Maximilian in Mexico, and today he is going to be rather profoundly resisted. Welcome to Interesting Times. I'm Joe Streckert. Last week I talked about how France installed the Emperor Maximilian in Mexico and essentially invented a monarchy to take over what had been a North American Republic. This week, I want to back up a bit and tell the story of the opposition and resistance to all this European meddling. The guy on the other side of this conflict, the leader of the Mexican liberals, the Republicans, who would bring down Maximilian, couldn't have been more different than the Habsburg Emperor. Uh, Benito Juarez is a remarkable figure. He was a Zapotec and is one of the only Native American leaders of a non-Native American country ever, which is sort of cool. And he didn't actually learn how to speak Spanish until his teens. Um, his life story is long and dramatic. For example, he was exiled by Santa Ana. Uh, during his exile, he lived in New Orleans. He lived in Cuba. Uh, he was also a Freemason, like, really into Freemasonry to the extent where it was sort of weird. But for our purposes, what made his career as a local politician and also as a judge important is that he was an anti-clerical liberal. Juarez, during his legal career, was a fierce advocate for limiting the powers of the Catholic Church in Mexico. Remember, last time I mentioned that he put in reforms about taking lands from the church and redistributing them to people who were not the church. Also, instituting policies in Mexico where all marriages would be civil and legal affairs rather than religious ones. So, he's not exactly the type of guy who'd be dazzled by old European institutions, like, for example, a Habsburg monarchy. And, fun fact, at 4 feet 6 inches, or 1.37 meters, he is probably one of the shortest world leaders on record. So, that's cool. What I find most dramatic and interesting, though, is that when Maximilian offered Juarez not only amnesty, but a position in his government as prime minister, Juarez said no. He preferred to war upon the foreign invaders rather than to collaborate with them. And had Juarez said yes, his participation in the Second Mexican Empire might have given the monarchy a degree of legitimacy in the eyes of some Mexican liberals and Republicans. Juarez, by not joining them, denied Maximilian's government that potential legitimacy. Instead, he provided the conservatives, the church, and the monarchists with a most formidable enemy. One of the reasons why I wanted to tell this story is that the contrast between Maximilian and Benito Juarez almost seems contrived. On one side, we have this foreigner from Austria who was raised in luxury as part of a noble family, and on the other, we have a guy who's not only from Mexico itself, but is also a Native American who came from a rural area and didn't even speak Spanish when he was growing up. Maximilian is very much the embodiment 
of old European institutions like monarchy and the Catholic Church. And Juarez, he's from the New World, he's from Mexico, and he is very much devoted to tearing down those institutions like monarchy and the Catholic Church. If one were to write a screenplay and one wanted to show contrast and difference between the two central characters of a drama, and you made one guy the son of a wealthy European family and the other guy the child of rural Native Americans, a lot of people would find that narrative device to be kind of hacky and contrived. But it actually happened like that, which I find sort of amazing. But I digress. From the perspective of Juarez and other Mexican liberals, the invasion by the French and the installation of Maximilian wasn't necessarily the beginning of conflict per se. Juarez's anti-clerical policies had made him enemies in Mexico itself. Uh, even before the French arrived, the liberals had been essentially at war with religious Mexican conservatives. Uh, and again, it was this instability and conflict that inspired France to invent a Mexican monarchy in the first place. So, when the French showed up with a whole lot of troops and ships, it wasn't like Mexico was unused to fighting. The liberals had been fighting conservatives at home, and now they were suddenly fighting conservatives from abroad. And I do mean fighting the conservatives from abroad. Maximilian didn't just walk in and take the crown after the sham plebiscites that I talked about last episode. This was a full-on military invasion, and one French general, Letril de Laurences, thought it would be an easy one, given that France was one of the premier military powers of that age. In an April 25th letter back to Paris, uh, Latrille wrote, We are so superior to the Mexicans in race, in organization, in discipline, in morality, and in elevation of feeling, that I beg your excellency to be so good as to inform the emperor that, at the head of 6,000 soldiers, I am already master of Mexico. Victory though, would not come easily for the French. One of the major battles of this invasion, sort of early in this invasion, was the Battle of Puebla on May 5th, 1862. The Mexican forces defeated the French, who did outnumber them fairly decisively, and even though the French would eventually march on Mexico City and install their fake emperor, the Battle of Puebla proved to be a major morale boost for Mexico. French casualties outnumbered Mexican casualties by over four to one. It was a type of defeat that the French never, ever counted on. One little note, after the Battle of Puebla, the Mexican forces celebrated by singing the Marseillaise, you know, dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun, within earshot of the French soldiers. That revolutionary anthem from France, it had been banned by the French government, by Napoleon III, and in this instance, it was retooled as an ironic anthem of resistance against the French invasion. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is where we get Cinco de Mayo from. So the next time you're out on the 5th of May with your buddies, remember that it's not just a holiday about tequila and revelry. It's also a holiday about singing French anthems at French soldiers in an ironic way after you just beat them at a major battle that you were not supposed to win. So next Cinco de Mayo, 
celebrate by telling European monarchists to go shove it. Anyways, the French, they did eventually take the capital, and Juarez and his government fled Mexico City and set up a government in exile in Veracruz. That was in May of 1863. Maximilian was crowned the following year. And again, for an emperor, Maximilian was actually pretty liberal, and he kept a great deal of Juarez's reforms in place, like the redistributing church property to the not-church and civil marriages and all that. But in a lot of ways it didn't matter. No matter how open-handed a reformist his policies were, he was still a European monarch foisted upon an independent, formerly Republican country. There is a quote often attributed to Benito Juarez that sums this up. He says, There is no help but in defense, I can assure you. The imperial government will not succeed in subduing the Mexicans, and its armies will not have a single day of peace. We must stop them not only for our country, but for the respect of the sovereignty of the nations. So, this isn't just a matter of disagreeing with Maximilian's policies. The very existence of Maximilian poses an existential threat to Mexican sovereignty and governmental legitimacy. No matter what Maximilian did, be it liberal or conservative or reformist or whatnot, would not get rid of that fundamental existential threat that he posed just by being a foreign monarch. So the Republicans kept fighting. Maximilian's forces could not seem to nail down power in northern Mexico, and in 1865, the Republican liberals started to win again and again. In response to the turning tide, Maximilian ordered what would later become known as the Black Decree, which stated that any prisoner of war that had sided with the liberals, or Juarezistas, as they were sometimes called, they would simply be executed immediately. No trials, no POW camps, no humane treatment, no prison cells, just immediate execution for any and all prisoners that they took during this conflict. Given Maximilian's fate, he probably shouldn't have done that but more on that later. And, meanwhile, during the 1860s, there's this rather sizable country called the United States just slightly north of here. Uh, the U.S., it's been involved in a civil war and thus unable to enforce the Monroe Doctrine, the policy that said that if any great power is going to meddle in the Americas, it's going to be the U.S. meddling in the Americas, not Europe. But the U.S. was far too busy shooting at itself in the Civil War to shoot Europeans, but all that is about to change pretty quickly. During the Civil War, Juarez did reach out to Abraham Lincoln. He offered the U.S. the right to land troops on Mexico's west coast in the event of a Confederate drive westward, obviously with the hopes that Lincoln would come to his aid with an offer of money or arms or men or something. The Confederacy, for their part, they actually also offered Juarez something. They offered him the lands that Mexico lost in the Mexican-American War, California, Arizona, and New Mexico. Juarez, though, probably knowing that the Confederacy was fighting a losing war and would not be able to offer them that land in any real way, declined and sided with the Union. And when the Civil War was done, the U.S. started purchasing Mexican government bonds, which I find amazing. Remember, 
that one of the big things that started all this was Mexico was not able to service its foreign debt. Mexico was not able to pay out on the government bonds that it was issuing. This was a problem for creditors in England, and Spain, and France, and a major impetus for all this involvement. So the U.S. is not just buying government bonds, but it's buying bonds that it knows probably it won't get that big of a return on. The U.S. is motivated right now by ideological interests when it's buying these bonds, not necessarily financial ones. Anyways, the U.S. also started running arms to the Republican forces. And that new supply line of guns and money was a shot in the arm for Juarez and his government. Now, France, it wasn't just fighting Mexico, which it proved to be difficult, but Mexico backed up by the industrial and financial power of the United States. So, Juarez suddenly has backing in the form of the U.S., He's just got an assist. The opposite is about to happen to Maximilian. So in the middle 1860s, the tide turns against the monarchist. It's going badly. And Maximilian gets the opposite of an assist. The whole conflict proved too much for the Europeans. And in 1867, Louis Napoleon began withdrawing his forces from Central America. Uh, the conflict was getting too long and too expensive. And now that the Civil War was over and the Union was able to project power and have foreign policy and all that, Louis Napoleon really, really didn't want to piss off the United States. One of the things that Louis Napoleon didn't end up withdrawing along with his troops, though, was Maximilian. The emperor was still in Mexico, uh, but now without the French forces to back him up and a whole lot of angry nationalistic liberal republicans surrounding him, Without a foreign power to fight for him, Maximilian was not in good shape. He could not impose monarchy on Mexico with only his domestic supporters on hand. He and what supporters he had retreated to a town called Querétaro, where they holed up and, surrounded by Juarez liberal forces, dug in for a two-month siege. The most dramatic description of the siege of Querétaro uh, that I found came from all places, a New Zealand newspaper called the Grey River Argus from 1867. Argus, by the way, was the name of a giant from Greek mythology. He had a hundred eyes and was known as the All-Seeing. Pretty good name for a newspaper then. Anyway, the emperor and his supporters, they are holed up in the city, the republican forces have them surrounded, and this report is from the perspective of a journalist who is telling in his own words, the imperial side of the story. Provisions were very scarce. The soldiers lived, to a great extent, upon horse and mule meat, but this was well-nigh exhausted at the time of the surrender. Maximilian fared like the common soldiers. He was cheerful, hopeful, and brave to rashness, frequently exposing himself to showers of bullets while inspecting his lines. On one occasion his subordinates besought him to leave them and his army to themselves and seek safety in flight. He replied, I do not deceive myself. I know if they catch me, they will shoot me. But while I can, I will not run away. On the 10th of April, being presented with an address from the citizens, he issued one reply in which he said, among other things, I am struggling cheerfully by your side. Let us continue to advance with determination on the road of our rights, and God will recompense our efforts. His whole conduct throughout shows him to be a high-toned, though misguided, individual. Eventually, of course, the siege ended. They ran out of mule and horse meat, 
and Juarez's liberal Republicans were able to capture the monarch. When this happened, Juarez was immediately beset by request from various European dignitaries and luminaries who begged him to spare the emperor's life. However, recall that Maximilian had issued the Black Decree, which had allowed for the immediate execution of Mexican fighters fighting for Mexico, people who had been fighting for and with Juarez. President Benito Juarez responded in kind, and on June 19, 1867, Maximilian, along with two of his generals, stood before a firing squad. According to legend, the one-time emperor's last words were Viva Mexico. His body was returned to Vienna. Maximilian could pretend to rule Mexico, but he would not be buried there. When I was researching this, I found more than a few sources that described what happened to Maximilian as a tragedy. I find that description troubling. Maximilian might have been naive, young, maybe something for a liberal of his time, and even a nice person, but he was still a foreign despot imposed on a republic. And any sympathy that I have for him is quickly obviated by his policy of killing prisoners of war. I do not generally support execution, but in the case of Maximilian, I can completely understand why Juarez did what he did. After Mexico dispensed with the French and with Maximilian, there were still domestic hardships to be had. Juarez continued his presidency into another term, and his administration would be followed by the troubled rule of Porfirio Diaz. But that's all a story for another time. For now, I'd like to focus on how, like the American revolutionaries before them, the Mexican liberals faced down the armed forces of a European power and won. And when we look at monarchy today, and we see it as a dead and illegitimate system, which it is, we should look to Mexico for a bit of thanks. Their battle against French meddlings and an Austrian pretender was one of the most significant steps for a world that would soon see far more presidents and prime ministers and far fewer kings and emperors. If you're listening to this on the day it comes out, it's Christmas Eve. Merry Christmas, everybody. Merry Christmas. Um, if you wanted to get me a Christmas present, and I know you do, go to iTunes. Search for Interesting Times. Give us a review. Give us a rating. Preferably a good one. Those are nice. Um, also, we're on Facebook, facebook.com slash interestingtimes with Joe Streckert. I tweet at Joe Streckert, and I will see you guys next week with another episode. Bye.